I'm Casey Thomas, and today's verses come from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, and Psalms chapter 115, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. Hey Grace242, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, a young French boy was only eight years old. That boy was named John Calvin. John Calvin's father worked for a local bishop as the administrator of the town's cathedral. Two ingredients really set the stage for John Calvin's life. The first was Calvin's family's connection to the bishop and other people of influence. And the second was young John's incredible intellect. As the Reformation spread like wildfire across Europe, John's extensive schooling would connect him to other reformed-minded people. And eventually, John left the Roman Catholic Church and published his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion when he was only 27 years old. Calvin's Institutes, even today, remains one of the most influential theological works ever written. John Calvin is considered a second-generation reformer. He took many of the ideas that were coming out of the Reformation out of Germany, and he expanded upon them, and he clarified them. The book Church History 101 captures Calvin's influence. John Calvin of France did the work of ten men in the compass of a relatively short life. No aspect of life and society went untouched by Calvin's influence. Some say that Calvin wielded greater influence over our history and culture than any other individual in the last millennium or since the close of the New Testament canon. As Presbyterians, we trace our faith lineage directly back to John Calvin. It's not an overstatement to say that no one is more influential on us as Presbyterians than John Calvin. Recently, the elder board was asked by someone from outside of our church what distinguished Presbyterianism. And Greg Johnson rightly said, well, much of our influence comes from John Calvin. For John Calvin, nothing was more important to him than the sovereignty of God. Here's what he writes in his Institutes. The will of God is the supreme and primary cause of all things, because nothing happens without his order or permission. God is the disposer and ruler of all things, that from the remotest eternity, according to his own wisdom, he decreed what he was to do, and now by his power executes what he decreed. In other words, there is no higher being than God. He spoke the cosmos into existence by the power of his word, and now because he is the creator of the cosmos, he rules over the cosmos. The prophet Isaiah has some incredible imagery for the sovereignty of God. Look at Isaiah 66 verse 1, and we'll read the first part. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. God is the king of the universe who reclines in his throne in the heavens and places his feet upon the ottoman that is the earth. Therefore, as the ruler of all things, as Calvin says, God's will is the supreme and primary cause of all things. Nothing happens without his order or permission. Simply put, as the ruler of the cosmos, 
God does whatever he wants with it. Look at our other scripture reading for today, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. Our God rules from his heavenly throne, and he does whatever pleases him. Bryn has a game for her Nintendo Switch called Animal Crossing, which is an open-world sandbox-style game. In the game, you're given an island which functions sort of like a blank canvas upon which you can make, build, and create basically whatever you want. You can build houses, you can plant trees, you can go fishing, you can send mail to other villagers in your town. I even have a house on Bryn's Island, and one of my favorite things is when she sends me mail in the game. The possibilities of what to do in the game are endless. What's funny to me are the differences in values between my 9-year-old daughter playing Animal Crossing and myself as a 34-year-old playing Animal Crossing. Bryn's telling me, go talk to some of the other villagers, Dad. Send some mail, Dad. Check the town bulletin board for anything new, Dad. The owl's sitting on there, so that means there's something new. And all the while I'm over here like, no, I don't have time for that. I have to catch fish to sell so I can pay off the loan on my house. Bryn created her island. Therefore, she gets to do as she pleases on the island. As the creator of the universe, God does as he pleases. This is what we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God. That God is the ultimate sovereign, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate authority, the supreme being. And as the sovereign, God does whatever pleases him. If you remember back to week one of this series, you remember that we contrasted religion with theology. And we said that religion is human-centered, conversely, theology is God-centered. Reformed theology, then, is not only God-centered because it's a theology, but it places heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. I like to use this four-word phrase to describe the primary distinctive of Reformed theology, and these are the four words, high sovereignty of God. Reformed theologian Louis Burkhoff writes this in his Systematic Theology. Reformed theology stresses the sovereignty of God in virtue of which he has sovereignly determined from all eternity whatsoever will come to pass, and works his sovereign will in his entire creation, both natural and spiritual, according to his predetermined plan. The hallmark of Reformed theology is the sovereignty of God. In all things, we emphasize that God is the supreme sovereign being, and like Psalm 115 says, He does as He pleases. As the supreme being, as the sovereign, God does whatever He wills. So what does this mean for us then? Well, it means three things. It means number one, good, number two, security, and number three, joy. Number one, good. If God is the sovereign and He does what He wants, it means that he works everything for good as he defines it. Many of you will know this verse, and this is one of my favorites, but let's look at Romans 8, verse 28. This is an incredibly comforting verse, especially in our day and age right now as we live. Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Romans 8, 28 says that God causes everything to work. Now you have to be sovereign in order to cause everything that happens to work for some sort of goal. And then it tells us that that goal is the good of those who love God. This is great news, folks, that God is so sovereign, so supreme, so in charge, that he can take every tragedy, every pain, every heartache, 
every mistake, every failure. He can take all of these bad things and he can work it for the good of those who love him. Now some of us might say, how is my friend who died from cancer, God working the good? Or how is my miscarriage, God working for the good? How can he take these tragedies? Well, first of all, we don't always see God's plans. We are temporal, finite human beings who only live in this world for a short amount of time. And so it may take years for us to see why God allowed for certain tragedies in our lives. It might take years for us to be able to see the good that God was working through the tragedies in our lives. And in some cases, it might take us all the way till we get to heaven until we see the good that God is working through these tragedies in our lives. But secondly, we need to remember that this is good as God defines it. When Romans 8.28 says that God causes everything to work for the good of those who love him, good is defined according to God. And here's sometimes where we run into trouble because God's definition of good is often different from our definition of good. We say, how can this be good, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Because I don't see the good in this at all. Well, remember, you don't see it because God's definition of good is different from your definition of good. But this is good news, folks, that at the end of the day, our God is so sovereign that he can take everything that happens, even the bad stuff, and he's pointing it toward a purpose, and that purpose is the good of those who love him. If we really believe that God is sovereign and the most supreme being, and if we believe that as the sovereign, he does what he wants, and if we believe that as he does what he wants, he's working it toward the good of those who love him, then God's sovereignty means security for us as believers. The Apostle Peter writes to persecuted followers of Jesus. And in his first epistle, in the first chapter, he opens with a load of encouragement for those believers who are experiencing pressure and violence and persecution for their following of Jesus. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1 and we'll read verses 3 to 5. The Apostle says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with a great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive his salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Peter says that it is through Jesus' resurrection that you are saved. And as a saved person, you also receive then from Jesus an inheritance. What is that inheritance? It is adoption as a son or daughter in the family of God, fully realized, come to its full completion. It is salvation. It is eternal life. It is meeting Jesus face to face. The inheritance is receiving a resurrected body like Jesus. There's so many things that are part and parcel of this inheritance. But where is that inheritance kept? What does the Apostle Peter tell us about the location of that inheritance? He says it is kept in heaven, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. In other words, your inheritance is completely secure because it rests with our Lord in heaven. Peter in verse 3 reminds the Jesus followers that they follow the one whom God sovereignly raised 
from the dead. Peter says, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. When I was a youth pastor, it became our habit to go every other year on a short-term mission trip. And we would go to City Church of Compton, which is a church plant whom I have a relationship with, in the city of Compton, California. And oftentimes when parents first heard the words Compton, California, and first did searches for Compton, California, they were like, there's no way I'm sending my kids there because they're seeing images of gang violence, street violence, crime, all sorts of nasty things. And the parents would say, hey, there is no way I'm sending my kid there. And so we would have these trainings that would happen leading up to the trip. Throughout the year, we'd meet together for these trainings to train the kids and get them ready for the trip. And parents would come to those meetings as well. And oftentimes, one of the things I would say at this meeting was this. I would say, what is the worst that can happen to us going on this trip? Let's just imagine for a second, what's the worst thing that could happen to us? And the answer to that question is, we all die. That is the worst thing that could happen, is that we all die on this trip. But we serve the one who raises the dead. We serve the one who is sovereign even over death, such that he rose his son Jesus from the dead. So we need not fear. We have total security because the worst, death itself, has been conquered by our sovereign Lord. There's a social media group that I'm a part of that combines three things that I love. It combines Reformed Theology, The Simpsons, and memes. And I was browsing there this week and I came across this meme that I want to share with you all. It says, how you sleep knowing that God is sovereign. And look at Monty Burns just enjoying the deepest sleep, right? We can be totally secure knowing that God is sovereign. We can be totally secure in our Lord who is so sovereign that he even raised his son Jesus from the dead. What does God's sovereignty mean for us? Security. God's sovereignty means good for his people. God's sovereignty means security for his people. And God's sovereignty means joy for his people. God's sovereignty means joy, a joy that is abundant, a joy that is true, a joy that is found nowhere else, a joy that never runs out. True, unending joy is found in God. Look at Psalm 33, verses 10 to 11. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes. But the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. Psalms tells us that God, as the sovereign one, frustrates the plans of the nations and the wicked plots against him. Conversely, though, as the sovereign, God's plans never fail. God's plans are never frustrated because he is the sovereign. If God does as he pleases, if God does whatever he wills, and if whatever he wills comes to pass, if whatever he wills is never frustrated, then God is the happiest being of all beings. In his book, Desiring God, Pastor John Piper asks this question, can you imagine what it would be like if the God who ruled the world were not happy? What if God were given to grumbling and pouting and depression? What if God were frustrated and despondent and gloomy and dismal and discontented and dejected? If that were the case, we would all relate to God like little children who have a frustrated, gloomy, dismal, discontented father. They can't enjoy him. But this is not the case. 
God is sovereign. Therefore, God is the most happy, most joyful being. Therefore, true joy, a joy that never runs out, is found in Him. Lately, as I interact with people, I think at least one, if not multiple, of those six words that John Piper mentioned apply to most people that I meet. Depressed, frustrated, despondent, gloomy, discontented, dejection. It seems like dejection has become a default status for most people in our culture. Now, if one of those words describes you, I don't blame you. I blame our culture. I blame what's been happening in this world. We are in the middle of a massive assault orchestrated by the principalities and powers and ruler of this world. And his intention is to chew up as many people as possible, leaving them in these states depressed, frustrated, despondent, gloomy, discontented, dejected. I think almost all of us can pick at least one of those words that apply to us right now. And so if one of these words apply to you, then my encouragement to you is to run to the one who is sovereign. Run to the happiest being that exists. Even though the principalities and powers are so obviously on the move right now, they still answer to God. The Apostle Peter, again, in his first epistle says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But even the devil only prowls to the degree that our sovereign God allows him to do so. The calamities of this world, all the frustrations, all the hardships, all the disappointments, all the failures, all the heartaches, all of these are subject to our sovereign Lord who reclines on his heavenly throne and makes the earth his footrest. He is totally sovereign, which means that he is totally happy. If you're depressed, frustrated, despondent, gloomy, discontented, or dejected, then drink from the fountain of joy that is our sovereign Lord. I'll close with a quote from Calvin's Institutes. If God contains in himself as an inexhaustible fountain all fullness of blessing, those who aspire to the supreme good and perfect happiness must not long for anything beyond him. Next week, we'll continue looking at our Reformed tradition through this lens of God's sovereignty. You don't want to miss it. Love you, Grace 242. See you next time.